in May of 2015, a 5.9 magnitude earthquake struck Malaysia's highest peak. The quake damaged roads and buildings and sent rocks and boulders raining down on the trekking routes popular with tourists from all over the world. As a result of this earthquake, 18 people died and many others were injured. It was a really tragic accident. But what caught the attention of the international media was who was blamed for this earthquake. Local officials didn't blame a seismic shift or plate tectonics or volcanic activity. Instead, government officials blamed this earthquake on four tourists who for a challenge removed their clothes on top of the mountain. According to them, this act of public indecency offended the spirits that they believe uh, dwell on that mountain. And the result was that deadly earthquake. In fact, some of them were, were charged with that and prosecuted for that act. Now, this might sound ridiculous to all of us. But many Christians actually fall into a very similar kind of trap of wanting to blame someone for the bad things that happen in this world. I think that's especially the case when it comes to physical illnesses. It seems that there's an increasingly number of Christians who believe that it's always God's will for us to be healthy. And so if someone is is suffering from a physical illness, then they must be to blame. They must be doing something wrong. They must have sin in their life. Or unbelief. Or lack of faith. But actually that kind of thinking isn't new. Jesus' disciples thought that. They thought that until Jesus corrected them. When he declared that one man's thinking was instead an opportunity for God's power to be revealed in opening his blind eyes. So we're going to read from John chapter 9 and we're going to read just verse 1 down to verse 12 uh, this morning. So John chapter 9 and verse 1. As he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus. But this happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. As long as it's day, we must do the work of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said this, he spat on the ground, made some mud with the saliva and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him. Wash in the pool of Siloam, this word means sent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. His neighbours and those who had formerly seen him begging asked him, asked, isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? 
Some claimed that he was. Others said, no, he only looks like him. But he himself insisted, I am the man. How then were your eyes opened, they demanded. He replied, the man they called Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed. And then I could see. Where is this man? They asked him. I don't know. He said. This incident started with a a controversial question. Jesus and his disciples were on their way out of the temple grounds, possibly after slipping away from this crowd who wanted to stone Jesus for blasphemy that we were looking at last week, when they saw a man who was blind from birth. Now, this man was in a terrible situation. I don't think any of us can really imagine what it would be like to have been blind from birth. To have never seen anything in this wonderful world. To always have lived in darkness. In fact, I can't remember how it came up, but we as a family were were having a chat about this uh, recently. And we were just wondering what it would be like to be in that situation. We're wondering if people in that situation can imagine images in in their mind or not. You know how you can think of something and you can see it in your mind? Can people who are blind do that? Or when they dream, do they dream in pictures or not? I don't know if you worry about those kind of things, but that's the kind of thing that we chat about sometimes. But what is clear with this man is that this blindness had a huge impact on his life. Because of it, he couldn't work. To survive, he had to beg. In verse 8 it says people had formerly seen him begging. That's probably what he was doing when Jesus saw him. Because beggars often waited at the gates of the temple for gifts from the worshippers. And so this man was sitting there, helpless, depending on the charity of others. And he would have had no hope of this situation changing in his life. He believed that he was going to be blind all of his life, right until his death. Later on he said to the Pharisees in verse 32 of this chapter, Nobody has even heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. Even though there were amazing healing miracles in the Old Testament, there is no record of a permanently blind person being healed from that blindness. And so this man was sitting there in darkness and despair, helpless to provide for himself, powerless to change his condition. But that's not just this man's situation. This is also a picture of the spiritual blindness of everybody who's outside of God's kingdom. So Paul said about those who have not trusted in Jesus, that they are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. And Paul said that that one of the reasons for this is the deception of Satan because the God of this world The God of this age, Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light 
of the gospel of the glory of Christ. So like this man, without Christ, without Jesus, we are all in darkness and despair. We are all helpless to provide for ourselves. We are all powerless to change our situation. But instead of seeing this man as a, as a picture of our spiritual condition, the disciples of Jesus seem to be focused on the question of who was to be blamed? Who was to blame for this situation? So in verse 2 they asked Jesus, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? There's a really quite terrible assumption here, isn't there? For them and for many others, there was a, a simple connection between sin and suffering. They believed that personal suffering was always caused by personal sin. So if this man was born blind, then the only question was, who sinned? Was, it, was he blind because he had sinned before he was born? Or was it that, he, that his parents had sinned? And that was why this child was born blind. One of them must be to blame. And the only debate for them was, which one? And this is a view that's still around today. There are many people in the world uh, today who believe in the, the Hindu and the Buddhist teaching of karma. In fact, it's part of our kind of common language these days. So, suffering is caused by the wrongs we do, especially in that, in that uh, system of beliefs, for the wrongs we've done in our past lives. That's the reason for suffering in our life today. But there's also people in churches this morning who believe in the prosperity gospel that teaches that God's plan for us is that we're always going to be healthy, wealthy and happy. That's God's plan. And so if we're not experiencing this, then we must have done something wrong. We must not be praying in the right way. We must not have enough faith. even for those of us who don't want to be part of that teaching there's a temptation for us and numerous other Christians who might think that subconsciously think that because they, because they follow God in their lives, because they, they do the right things, because they're faithful in their following of Christ then surely things are going to work out for them, okay so if bad things happen in their life their first kind of question is why would God let that happen to me? After all, I've been serving him for years. I've been faithful. I haven't done anything wrong. Why me, God? And of course, the Bible does teach that sin in our own lives can bring suffering into our lives. So we look over the, over the Bible, we see lots of examples of that. For example, when Pharaoh took Abram's wife into his own palace. It says in Genesis chapter 12, the Lord inflicted serious diseases on Pharaoh and his household because of Abram's wife Sarah. It was, a, it was in judgment on what they'd done by, by taking 
the wife of another guy. Now, they didn't know that, in fact, because that was Abraham had lied about his wife. Then when Miriam and Moses, sorry, when Miriam and Aaron opposed Moses, it says the anger of the Lord burned against them and there stood Miriam leprous, like snow. She was inflicted with leprosy because of her, her rebellion against Moses, God's appointed leader. And it's not just in the Old Testament we see this. So when Paul spoke about the division and the sin in the church in Corinth, especially around their, their communion time together, he said, that is why many among you are weak and sick and a number of you have fallen asleep. Some of them were ill, some of them had died because of their, the sin in their life. And it's an illustration of a basic principle that we see in this world. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Our actions, our attitudes, our behaviour can bring serious consequences into our lives. And there's lots of different kind of uh, simple examples of that. You know, if you if you drive without your seatbelt on, you're you're putting your life in danger. If you have an accident, you're going to suffer even more of that. If we eat the wrong food, then we might have health issues afterwards. If we drink the wrong stuff, then we might have health issues. You know, those are some of the, the simple explanations or simple examples of that. But if we assume that this means that personal suffering is always or even usually the result of personal sin, if we blame people for being ill, if we think we have the right to criticise people because they're not healthy or because they're not happy, if we do that then we've misunderstood the Bible and we are simply wrong. Jesus did not agree with his disciples' assumption that this man's blindness had been caused by his or his parents' personal sin. Listen to his clear answer, verse 3. Neither this man nor his parents sinned. That didn't mean, of course, that they'd never been sinned, that they were sinless. We've all sinned and we've all fallen short of God's standard. But what Jesus was saying here was that this man's blindness was not the result of his sin. Nor was it the result of his parents' sin. Personal suffering is not always or usually the result of personal sin. I think this is the, the very clear teaching of the book of Job. Or Job, as some of you like to call it. Job suffered incredibly through the loss of his business, his wealth, his family, his health. And his three friends came to support him in his grief. And initially, they just sat quietly, silently with him in his suffering. They did a really good job of comforting him, of just being with him in his, in his suffering. 
But then they ruined it all when they opened their mouths. And they blamed Job for his suffering. So the, the book of Job is a very uh, intense book and very poetic book. But they, they said things like this. Who being innocent has ever perished? Where were the upright ever destroyed? Basically they were saying, Job, in this world, good people are blessed, bad people suffer. You're suffering, Job, so you must have sinned. That's basically their theology. God looks after his people, so they will always be looked after, they will always be uh, blessed, but the evil people, they were the ones who are going to suffer for it in this life. But they were wrong. Job did not suffer because of his personal sin. I've heard lots of even Bible teachers trying, you know, work around us and try and get round to say, no, Job actually did have faults in his life and he, and he didn't have enough faith and all of that kind of stuff. But I've got God's word for it. That it wasn't his fault. So Job chapter 1 verse 8 says this. This is what God said about Job. There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright A man who fears God and shuns evil. Job wasn't a horrible sinner and he suffered because he was reaping the result of his sin. And then at the end of the book, God actually reprimanded Eliphaz and his two friends and he said, I am angry with you and your two friends because you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. God basically just said, Eliphaz, you and your two friends, you're wrong. Job is the one who's right here. And then he went on to tell them to sacrifice a a, a burnt offering in repentance of their sin and to ask Job to pray for their forgiveness. So that book in the Bible, which is probably the oldest book in the Bible, teaches us that personal suffering is not always or usually the result of of personal sin. In fact, did you see what Jesus said was the reason why this man was blind? Did you notice that in verse 3? He said, this happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. This blindness was not punishment from God for sin. It was not evidence that this man or his parents had done something really wrong. Rather, even although this man was suffering the consequences of just living in this fallen and sin-cursed world, this messed up world, God had an amazing purpose in it. God was going to use this man's situation to reveal his glory and his power his grace. Joseph learned that lesson in his life. He said to his brothers, the one who had sold them, sold them into slavery, he said, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good, to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. 
God didn't cause the evil actions of his brothers. But God used it to accomplish something wonderful. Paul also learned that lesson when he was pleading with God to take away this, what he describes as a thorn in the flesh, this painful situation in his life. But the Lord replied, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And so though there are many different and varied reasons for the suffering in our lives, the amazing truth is that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Even in the most difficult, the most painful, the most overwhelming situations in our lives, God is at work for our good and for his glory. Of course, we don't always see this played out in our lives in ways that we can actually, uh, we can actually see and understand this side of heaven. We don't always be able to stand back and say, wow, I'm amazed. Look at how God is using my suffering in this way, in this way, in this way. That, that's wonderful when it happens, but we don't always see that. God's purpose is an eternal one. So we need to hold on to this truth, even in the darkest of times, because God is working for our eternal good. But sometimes God does work in ways that we can see. How God is bringing good out of evil. That's what happened in this man's life. God was going to work in a way that was convincingly going to demonstrate in his life God's grace and God's love. So verse 4, Jesus said, As long as it is day, we must do the work of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. Jesus knew that the time for his work was limited and so he was willing to do the work that his father had sent him to do right now. So what Tony was reminding us earlier. This is the day that we have to serve him. And in Jesus' case, his work was to be a light in the darkness. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Jesus' actions here were going to demonstrate the reality of this by opening this man's eyes, by rescuing him out of darkness and bringing him into the light. So look at verse 6. Having said this, he spat on the ground, made some mud with the saliva and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him. Wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means sent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. Now that's pretty gross, isn't it? Not many of us would like that. But there have been many suggestions about why Jesus healed this man in this way. Some people are very clever in making up ideas about why this, this happened. Some people have suggested that we're supposed to think of how the Lord God formed the man out of the dust of the ground. So this is Jesus, again, acting as the, the creator. 
And it also seems that we're supposed to notice that, that this pool that he sends this man to, this pool called Siloam, it means sent. So the man was sent to wash there by the one who was sent by his father. So there's, there's all those layers of meaning in that. But have you noticed, this is the thing that jumps out at me, how Jesus healed people in so many different ways. So here, he made mud from saliva, and then he told the man to wash it off. Another time, he healed two blind men when he touched their eyes and said, according to your faith, it will be done to you. And yet another time, Jesus spat on the man's eyes. I think that's even worse. And put his hands on him. But that only partially healed his sight. And then it was only after Jesus again put his hands on him that he was fully healed. And then in the Gospel of John, this is the kind of third healing uh, miracle that we've seen. And in John chapter 5, with a disabled man at the pool of Bethsaida, remember? He just told him to get up. And he got up and he was healed. And then in John chapter 4, with the official son... Well, that boy who was seriously ill wasn't even there when Jesus said, go on, he is healed. All these different ways. Why is that? I think part of the reason is so that we don't focus so much on the manner of healing rather than the message of the healing. There isn't a a method, a strategy, a a, a way of doing this, a ritual that we need to go through in order to to ensure somebody's healing. Sometimes he put his hands on him, sometimes he didn't, sometimes he just prayed, sometimes he shouted in a loud voice. They're all different ways. So that we don't think, oh well, we need to to try and do things the way that Jesus did it. Because there's so many different ways that Jesus did this healing. So what is the message of that, this healing? Well, this man was healed even though he'd been blind from birth. He experienced what nobody in his situation had ever experienced before. That's because Jesus has the power to do what nobody else can do. Jesus alone is the one who can bring him out of darkness and into the light. So this fifth miraculous sign in the book of John again points to the reality of who Jesus is. So in Isaiah 42, the Lord promised that the Messiah, the future servant of the Lord, He said this to him, I will keep you and will make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles to open eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison and to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. Jesus healed this man's eyes. And we're supposed to think, he's the Messiah. He's the servant of the Lord. But I think more than this, this miracle pointed to them that, not, that, that, not, that Jesus wasn't just the servant of the Lord. But he's actually the Lord himself. So Psalm 146 verse 8 says, The Lord gives sight to the blind. 
The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. But these promises weren't really just speaking about physical blindness and physical sight. So just as this man's blindness was a picture of our spiritual blindness without Jesus, so this man's healing is a picture of our spiritual healing with Jesus. So Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and 6, God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. So just as Jesus, our creator, dispelled the darkness and brought light into this world, Just as he dispelled the darkness in this man's life and opened up his eyes to the light. So he is the one who can dispel the darkness of our hearts. Open up our blinded minds. Reveal the truth of who he is and what he can give. And can bring us into the light of his eternal life. We're supposed to see ourselves in this story. And as John stated at the start of his gospel, in him was life, and that life was the light of men. We're supposed to rejoice and say, that's what's happened to me, if we've trusted in Jesus. But unfortunately, not everybody wants to come into that light. One of the recurring themes in the book of John as we'll be looking through, isn't it? That Jesus comes to bring this beautiful light into our life. But so many people don't want it. So the next verse in John chapter 1 says this, The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. And people certainly did not understand or accept what, what was happening here with this man. This healing started a really kind of curious debate about whether this man was the one who used to sit and beg. It's really quite strange, isn't it? Because they said, some claimed that he was this man. Others said, no, he only looks like him. He's his body double, I guess they're saying. But as we'll see in more detail next week, this debate really wasn't about the identity of the man who'd been healed from his blindness. This debate was really about the identity of the man who had healed this man from his blindness. These people refused to accept, refused to accept this healing because they were blinded to the reality of who Jesus really was. And they didn't want to accept him. In John chapter 9, there isn't just one man who is blind. There are many of them, as we'll see as we go on in this chapter but that's for next week this morning I just want us to see how Jesus wants to bring his light into our lives bring his light into our lives so that we can see that suffering in our lives comes through many different ways and for many different reasons So we will not be among those who blame the sick for their suffering. That we will not 
point to them and say there's something wrong in their lives. That they must have done something wrong. That they are suffering the consequences of their sins. Or that they don't have enough faith. Let's not be among those who blame those who are suffering for what they're doing. But we need to also let the light of Jesus into our lives so that we can see that Jesus is the one who can heal. Even in the most impossible of situations. Let's hold on to the reality that Jesus is the one who has the power to heal. So let's keep praying for those who are sick. Let's also let Jesus open our eyes so that we can see that Jesus is working for our good even in the painful situations of our lives. Let's not lose hope even when we're suffering. Even when we feel our body is just being pummeled by all of the stuff that's going on in our lives, let's hold on to the hope that God is working for our good and for his glory. And let Jesus bring his light into our lives so that we can see that Jesus is the one who can dispel the darkness in our lives and bring us into the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. And believe that not just for ourselves, but for all those who are around us who are living in darkness. So we'll keep on going into this world with the light of the gospel of Jesus.